Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you again as we continue our sermon on Philippians. How about I pray for us as we go through God's words today? Heavenly Father, thanks for your goodness to us. We pray that as we look at your word this morning, you will help us to understand it, but more to see how it applies in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the church plant at Philippi was definitely God's initiative. A messenger from God called Paul to come over to the region during his second missionary journey. And about 50 AD, Paul stopped in the city of Philippi. And it was very, very much a Roman city. Citizens of Philippi were treated as Roman citizens. And there were lots and lots of settlers who had come across from Rome. So much so that um, there were too few Jews there to form a synagogue. So on the Sabbath, Paul went to see if there were any Jews meeting by the river outside town. And you can see the river there. I thought it was a great big river, but it's actually only a very small river where he met some of the local Jewish population. And among them, he found Lydia, a wealthy merchant of purple dye. And she welcomed the message of the gospel and church tradition says she was baptized in the river at that point. It's pretty hard to see how they could get her under the water for that, with that amount of water, but that, that's where church tradition said it all happened. Um, there was also a case of Paul driving a demon out of a slave girl who went on to become Christian. And there was also persecution in that city for Paul, as some of the Jewish leaders tried to stop the spread of the gospel. Paul and his companions were imprisoned by the city authorities. And if you go to the, um, the city now, you can see the prison where Paul was said to have been put. But after an earthquake and Paul escaped, Paul told the gospel to the jailer and he and his whole household became Christian. Such was the makeup of the early church at Philippi. And it was such a diverse group who would never be seen together in Roman society because Jewish people would never hang out with non-Jewish people. Rich people would never hang out with poor people in that society. And nobody at all wanted to hang out with someone who had once been spirit-possessed. But with a common experience of their faith in Jesus, this group gathered together and became the church in Philippi. Now we're about 12 years on and the Philippian church risks falling to bits. It really could come apart at the seams. Things are getting tough on every side. External persecution is back. There's a risk that people will drop out of church rather than face external persecution. But there are also internal problems, disputes between church members threatened to tear the church apart. And underneath it all, the church members continue to have the age-old problem of sinful human self-interest. Any and all of those problems could tear the church apart in Philippi. And come to think of it, these are problems that could tear any church apart, even our church here in 21st century Sydney. Church is easy when things are going well. The people are friendly and supportive. People encourage you to grow in their in your faith. We work together really well. But when the going gets tough, that's when our unity can really come under threat. If you have a look around here at Grace Point, 
we're a pretty diverse group of people. We come from all over the city, so it's not like we're just a local neighbourhood gathering here at Lidcombe. And beyond that, we have different backgrounds, different ages, different interests. And if our only commonality is a shared interest in things Christian, will it be enough to hold the church together when things get tough? And that's why this part of Philippians is really important for us because it shows us that when the going gets tough, the cross must shape our response. That's the key to holding the church together when the going gets tough. All right, let's dive into the passage and see how that worked out for the church in Philippi. First risk to their church unity comes from external threats. Persecution is looming, and it's because they are Christian. The empire's mood of indifference towards Christians is rapidly disappearing. Paul, the founder of their church, is now locked up in prison in Rome. That's where he's writing this letter from. And the persecution has reached their doorstep in Philippi. There's a feeling of fear in their church at Philippi, perhaps a readiness to give up and, uh, and avoid the persecution. There's a real risk that they will not stand together as a church to contend for the gospel. And so Paul addresses the matter head on. Look in verse 27 where he says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So they are to stand in one spirit. Threats of persecution are not to frighten them away from meeting together as Christians. They're not to be afraid of the persecution. Instead, they conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But come on, seriously, are these just Paul's wishes Right? Are they just hopeful words from Paul? Is it realistic for a group of people to stick together when the heat is on? Because you see, human-shaped wisdom says when the going gets tough, give up meeting together. Avoid the trouble. Keep your head down. Dodge the persecution. That's the human way of looking at it. So Paul takes them beyond the human way of thinking. And he lifts their eyes up to the cross. Look at what he says in verse 28, the second half. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So you see, when you look at persecution through human eyes, things look bleak. But when you look at it through the lens of the cross, it's quite different. It's a reminder that Eternal destruction and eternal salvation hinges on the cross. Now, worldly persecution is a problem, but a much, much bigger problem is being separated from God. Christians who stand firm under persecution demonstrate to those watching that there's something beyond this world. Now, the reality of their response to persecution echoes what Jesus said back in Mark 8. Remember when Jesus called the crowd to him and his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. If anyone is ashamed of me, says Jesus, and my words in this 
adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Christians will suffer. Persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. But we stand up under suffering because we know that our eternal destiny is far more important than any suffering we can face in this life. The human-shaped response to persecution is to avoid trouble, even if it means leaving the church. But the cross gives us a different approach. The cross defines our eternal destiny. We will only spend eternity with God if we put our faith in Jesus, and that includes taking up our cross. That's the ground for cross-shaped unity when persecution comes. Now, let's think a bit more about persecution. Somewhere, somehow, every serious Christian is going to suffer for their faith. There are parts of the world where Christians face job loss and exclusion, imprisonment, and even death for their faith. In different parts of the world, that persecution might come from Muslims, from Hindus, from communist governments. There are a whole lot of people lining up in different parts of the world to make life difficult for Christians. But Christians there must conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, even as they face persecution that severe. Christians must hold on to the cross-shaped unity. And this is a sign to persecutors and the watching community that Christianity is real. Now, when we think about this sort of persecution and we talk about what happens in Australia, we don't want to trivialize what happens to some Christians in other parts of the world. But in Australia, we probably get some persecution, but it's less extreme and often much more subtle. It usually comes from a push to privatise our own Christian faith, perhaps steer away from some controversial topics. But as we face that sort of low-level persecution, perhaps at work or university or school, it must not drive us apart or intimidate us. Instead, we must stand firm together in cross-shaped unity. Cross-shaped unity helps us in our post-Christian Australian society we could stand together and support one another if we are hassled for our faith. Maybe you come to church and you debrief about some nasty anti-Christian comment someone made at work. But our cross-shaped unity also has an effect on non-Christians. So think about it. What's the thing that most impresses non-Christians about Christianity? Is it good answers to the their questions about Christianity? Is it a slick presentation of the gospel using all the latest technology? Now, I think the thing that most impresses non-Christians at the end of the day is when Christians stand firm under persecution. And the reason is because it shows that there's something behind Christianity that's worth holding on to. Now, if you have a look at the statistics, the areas of the world where Christianity is growing fastest include the areas where persecution is the harshest. Places like Iran and China, believers stand firm with a cross-shaped unity and more gather to join them. 
the statistics in Australia are interesting as well because churches who water down the gospel to fit in with society and avoid that persecution are not the ones that are growing. The ones growing in our post-Christian age in Australia are the ones who stick to the message of the cross, the ones who show cross-shaped unity when faced with persecution. Okay, so that's the first thing we've got to remember. When the going gets tough and it feels like the church might fracture, when we are faced with external threats like persecution, seek a cross-shaped unity. All right, let's have a look at the second thing that can fracture Christian unity. The second problem comes from internal threats, disunity in the church. When faced with internal threats, Christians must seek cross-shaped unity. At Philippi, tensions are building in the church, and the unity of the church is under threat. In chapter 4, we hear of two women in the church who are in dispute. And they're not just people on the fringes of the church. These are the core people, people who had contended for the gospel alongside Paul. And this internal dispute threatens to undermine the unity of the church in Philippi. It's hard to hold the church together when you're in the middle of a church fight. It's hard to make disciples of all nations when people are fighting over different issues. So Paul shows them how cross-shaped unity can overcome these internal threats. He shows them how cross-shaped unity can hold the church together. And to do that, he uses four if statements and then four then statements. Let's have a closer look. Four if statements in verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. So remember, Christians are each united with Christ because of the cross. And through this, we are united with every other Christian who is also united uh, through the cross. And that bond can bring us so much encouragement. The next if statement, if any comfort from his love. Recall um, how Jesus loves us all the way to the cross in 1 John 3. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's the sort of love we show each other within the Christian community. The next if statement, if any common sharing in the Spirit. Remember, when we became Christian, we received the Holy Spirit and that made us part of the Christian fellowship through the cross. Look back and remember how good it has been since that happened. The final if statement, if any, tenderness and compassion. Look back and remember tenderness and compassion over all the years we felt within the cross-shaped love of Jesus for the Christian community. Look back at the cross-shaped good times you've experienced as a Christian Because that's a reminder to behave differently when internal troubles hit the church. Look back at all the advantages you've received over the years of being a Christian. Now, I grew up in a Christian home, so sometimes it's 
it's easy for me to take these things for granted. So it's so refreshing to hear how life can really, really change for someone when they convert to Christianity. I was out and about a couple of weeks ago and someone said to me, Is, are you, excuse me, are you the pastor from Grace Point Church? And it's like, oh yeah, I, yeah, I am. And it's like, anyway, I got talking to the person. It turns out it's someone from our Mandarin congregation who's seen me around church. And I asked him, oh, how did you start coming to Grace Point? And he said, um, he had migrated from China in mid-high school and um, went to the local school, was struggling to learn the language. Um, financial issues for the family meant that they basically, he had to get a, a job straight out of high school, so he didn't really have the chance to hang out and get networks of friends. And he just had to work really hard to support the family and um, pay the bills and everything. And he said, for him, life was pretty meaningless because he would work really hard all day to pay the bills and then he would come home, there was no friends to hang out with and lots of family fights for him. So life was very difficult. But he said one day his life was transformed because his sister came home and told him the gospel. His sister came home and started telling him about Christianity. So it took a while for him to bring that on board and he then started coming along to our church and as he came along, he started to find purpose in his life. He started to find strong friendships in his life. And now he's a regular member here in our Mandarin service because he's seen the advantages he's had of being in, our, being in the Christian community. And he wouldn't want to give that up at all. Now, his experience is much closer to the people in the Philippian church than mine because all the people in the church at Philippi had converted to Christianity within the last few years. And it's a reminder for someone like me who's grown up in Christianity that we really have something very, very precious here in the Christian community that a lot of people out there don't have anything like that. And Paul says, this is the key to church unity. Remember, the encouragement we've received over the years by gathering with other Christians. Uh, four if statements, advantages that they've already received by becoming a Christian. So build on them now when the going gets tough. Look at the four then statements in verse 2, which are really saying the same thing. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Having received all those cross-shaped benefits since becoming a Christian, think carefully before giving them up. There's a lot at stake. A human-shaped response might give up under pressure, but a cross-shaped response will work towards the unity of the church. Think about it this way. Um, a couple of years ago, we were forced to give up meeting together as a church. Remember COVID? Yeah, how could we forget that? Yeah, all right. So we didn't get a chance to meet together as a church during COVID. There's something very different about watching the service online and having a Bible study on Zoom. And we didn't have the advantages of face-to-face -face meeting and the unity that comes from the fact that we all gather here on Sunday morning. 
And it's a real reminder of the benefits we have because we're also glad to come back at the end of the lockdowns and gather here Sunday by Sunday. The encouragement, the comfort, the common sharing, the tenderness, the compassion, all of those advantages we have from gathering together as a group of Christians. Now, says Paul, build on them with the attitude of like-mindedness especially if the going gets tough at church. So let's think a bit more about what church unity looks like. It's not just unity for the sake of unity, right? What we're looking for is cross-shaped unity, right? Now, within a church, as with any other gathering of people, there are all sorts of issues that come up. It can be anything from personality clashes, disagreements about music style, all sorts of different things. But there are also critical disputes because within a church community, we may end up in disputes where someone's salvation hinges on these things. And that's why the cross has to shape our approach to unity. So what does unity look like in church? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't look like. We're not looking for unity in form by all doing the same things or all singing the same songs or all wearing the same T-shirt. We're looking for unity that comes... We're not looking for unity that comes when someone follows the strongest leader or the most charismatic leader and just keeps quiet and just does what they're told. We're all not, also not looking for the sort of unity where we just paper over the cracks and avoid working through real issues and tough issues. No, what we're looking for is a deeper cross-shaped unity that goes down to the very core of why we gather as a church. Where there are matters that are central to the gospel, we must not settle for a unity that gives away too much. Ask questions, challenge things that might compromise Christianity. But as we do so, we must bring an attitude that remembers all the benefits we've had over so many years of being in this Christian community. Think about it also, where there's a dispute between two Christians. Work on settling the dispute. But as you settle the dispute, work on it in a way that keeps the unity. So in my role as a pastor over many years, I've had to work through disputes between different church members. I remember uh, quite a while back sitting down with two guys who had been sharing an apartment and... By the time they'd lived together, they had really rubbed each other up the wrong way and were really stressed. Now, don't worry, they've, they've, they're long past when the church was back at Burwood. So it's, it's not anyone that you're going to know or I'm not going to name names. Anyway, anyway, so they had come to the point where they just really couldn't get on. So the uh, lease was ending. They were moving out, going their separate directions. Um, and they worked out that because they're in a dispute and they were key people in the church, that they had to sort out the money issues. They had to make sure all the rent was paid up and allocated to the right person and the utility bills were fixed. So they called me in and said, could you help us work through this? Because... The long and the short of it was they really couldn't communicate well enough because of all the, the stress and the angst they'd been through. So I, I went through all the financials with them. We reached an agreement on who owed what money to whom. And then they said, 
okay, what we're going to do, we're just going to pay out and then we're just going to sit back and let the emotions go off this and later on we'll work through and settle some of our other disagreements. But what really impressed me was the fact that they wanted to keep the unity of the church because it would be so easy to go around the church and say, oh, you know what this person's like to live with, they're such a pain in the neck and they did this and they did that. But if they did that, they knew that they could break the unity of the church at Grace Point. So their approach, which impressed me, was get me to come in as a pastor, sit down, work through the issues, and then just separate and keep their mouth shut until things calm down, rather than doing it the aggressive way. And that's something that avoided a public argument that could have fractured the unity at Grace Point. All right, that's the lesson for us. When we face internal threats, we must seek cross-shaped unity. Okay, external threats like persecution, internal threats like church disputes, but what's underneath them? Too often, it's the attitude of sinful human self-interest that lurks inside every one of us. That's the underlying threat often to Christian unity. Human self-interest has been a problem since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden. But since the Enlightenment in the 1700s, Western individualism has made self-interest an expectation. It's made it a right And I think it's even made it a virtue. In our wealthy society, people have got the money to fund their own self-interest. But in the last maybe 15 or so years, things have gone to another level because social media now lets us compare with everyone and feed our self-interest even more. But the problem is this self-interest has created a society with so many lonely people. I've heard it said that we're in an epidemic of loneliness and that's because it's hard to have any kind of unity when everything is about you. Sinful human self-interest is all around us in Australia. But the trick is we've got to make sure we don't bring that into our church. So when we get to verses 3 and 4, Paul says the antidote for sinful human self-interest is the idea of not self but others. He says it twice in different ways, once in verse 3, once in verse 4, but he's making the same point. In verse 3, the idea of not self but others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. That's the attitude that works against sinful self-interest. Verse 4, look at how he does the idea of not self but others. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Actively pushing back against the self-interest that comes from our sinful nature. Looking instead to the interests of others. The approach of not self but others must pervade our Christian community. If not, our unity can be put at risk. Now, there's one little word in those verses that shows us how we can reach the idea of not self but others. Can you see it in verse 3? It's the word humility. 
All right, the attitude of humility that doesn't just look at our own interests but looks to the interest of others. So what do we mean by that term humility? Well, the answer becomes clear in the next few verses when not self but others is shown in the example of Jesus' humility. And what it boils down to is that humility comes from a position of strength not weakness. So most of our society, if you ask them to define oh, what, what does a humble person look like, they would probably say something like, oh, it looks like a, a walkover or someone who can't stand up for their own rights. But that's not what humility is about. Humility starts with a position of strength. Humility starts when someone has the power, but then they choose not to defend their rights, not to win. Look at the example of Jesus Right, who in very nature, God, from before time, right, in heaven with God, right, and he chooses to become a servant. He chooses to take on human form. And then he demonstrates the ultimate in humility. He humbles himself to death on a cross. Okay? It's the essence of humility as it comes as Jesus stoops lower and lower. This is the cross-shaped humility that we are to imitate. Now, if you look at those verses about Jesus, what's interesting is that the, the attitude of Jesus is there to show us our relationships with others. Verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what follows is a summary of what Christians believe about Jesus. It gives us the defining meaning of humility as we work out the idea of not self but others, the example of Jesus' cross-shaped humility. Now, we could spend weeks on these verses digging up lots and lots of things about Jesus, how he's fully human, right, and fully God, his place in the Trinity, his death on the cross and how that saves us. In fact, at Bible college, we pretty much did a whole subject for a semester on this. But remember, for all the interest of these and the familiarity we have with this passage, Paul's not using this early hymn to teach doctrine. He's showing us the example of Jesus' cross-shaped humility we are to imitate. Is anyone following along on my outline? Okay, now did you notice that these are verses we all know from Philippians. We'll sing the song later. Um, we all know this stuff, right? But it only gets a little subheading there. It's like subheading too big. It doesn't get its own section. It doesn't get put up in lights because the point here is not to learn all of this stuff but to imitate what Jesus does. Okay? So let's think about how it works for us. Humility isn't about avoiding tough issues. Humility isn't about being a walkover. No, humility comes when we have the strength, when we have the rights, and we choose to give them up for a bigger goal like Jesus did. That's the essence of cross-shaped humility. Now, some back, time back, I was talking to one of our junior high school boys about how school was going. And he started to share with me that 
um, at his all boys high school, a really toxic culture had taken over in the grade. They had some kind of chat group where all the students in the grade were on it, and people started circulating these videos. So, in effect, they were getting discipled by these videos. I don't know whether they found them on TikTok or, or YouTube or something. And basically, the videos said a win-at-all-costs approach. If anyone backs down on even the smallest thing, it's a sign of weakness. And they encouraged each other to keep fighting something until they won the matter. And if they didn't succeed the first time, they would go back and continue the fight until they won. Now, I would have hated to have been the deputy principal in that school because you would have seen most of the grade at the end of lunchtime because of all these fights and disputes among them as they fought for their own self-interest. But it all went to a another level when they played against another school at sport because it wasn't just a matter of their team on the field winning it was that the spectators would trash talk the spectators from the other school so that they could have this win at all costs attitude now young teenagers and often boys lack subtlety and that's why it makes it so easy for us to see what sinful human self-interest looks like but here's the trick. As adults, we can sometimes bring the same attitude. And it looks really out of place at church. We can come in and try and put our own sinful self-interest at church. Sometimes we even bring a win-at-all-costs attitude. Now, we code it in spiritual words. We don't make it as obvious as junior high schoolers do. But the attitude of sinful self-interest can be our guiding force. But the example of Jesus shows us how we have the choice not to win at all costs. We have the choice to put aside our self-interest for a bigger issue. Right? I tried to kind of talk to the teenager about some of the ways to think about the toxic culture in his grade at school. So I kind of appealed to fairness. I said, oh, I'd rather be in a sporting competition with a winning team and its spectators have played with such good sportsmanship that no one could deny they deserve victory. But Jesus goes much, much beyond this idea of simple fairness because in humility he puts aside his own self-interest and he humbles himself to die on a cross to save us from our sinful self-interest and bring his followers to something much better. That's the attitude of Christ-shaped humility to guide us when tough times threaten our unity here at church. Now, I'll let you in on a secret. In my role as youth pastor, one of the most important things I do is to select new leaders for extreme. Teens are going to learn things from the Bible study, but often they will learn so much more over a number of years by watching the lives of their leaders. And that's why this idea of cross-shaped humility is important when I'm choosing a new leader for extreme. All of us as Christians should be doing these things, but leaders so much more so because people will look at our lives and imitate them. So we're called to a higher standard. So I'm looking for someone who doesn't have to win at all costs. I'm looking for someone who can say, no, maybe the interests of the cross mean I don't have to win this argument. 
I'm looking for someone who doesn't need to escalate a dispute. If the bigger needs of the cross prevail, someone ready to descend like Jesus, someone ready to give up their rights, someone ready to serve others with cross-shaped humility like Jesus did. So to sum it up, Jesus is the example of the cross-shaped humility that can overcome the sinful self-interest that can split apart any Christian community. But there's one more thing we need to understand about church unity. Church unity is not an end in itself. It's a great experience to be in a church that displays this cross-shaped unity. All those words we had back in verse 1 are the things that I want to see in church. Words like encouragement, comfort, common sharing, tenderness, compassion. Those are all things that will make us feel good as we meet up together. But church unity is not primarily for our comfort and enjoyment. It's a nice byproduct. Rather, church unity is a part of where God is taking the universe. Now, if you look carefully at verses 6 to 8, all those words about Jesus, it was Jesus taking the action, making himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, humbling himself to death on the cross. And we know it didn't end with Jesus' death on the cross. We know about the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. But now, in verse 9, we see it from God's point of view because God picks up the action and starts taking action in response. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So having taken himself to the lowest place, God now elevates Jesus to the highest place. The name above every name means it's about a change of status. Jesus is now more exalted than anything in the created universe. And our church unity must show a watching world the reality of that. Sometime back, I was driving up in the northwest suburbs of Sydney, and it's completely different to down here, because as far as the eye can see, there are fields in every direction. Sometimes there are cattle grazing, sometimes there are crops growing, right? And then I'm driving along among all these fields, and then suddenly I came across this bunch of newly built houses in the middle of nowhere. And there's a big sign saying, Display Village. And it turns out that the government has rezoned that whole area for redevelopment. And within um, just a few years, all those fields are going to be turned into suburbs that look like the display village. Um, the idea of a display village is that the builder and developer um, builds a few high-quality houses, and then you can go in, have a look, and say, when you buy land, which is out in those fields, um, you can build their style of house, and then the builder um, will, will fix that all up for you. But for... People like me, as we drive through there, this little display village is all we can see of the suburb that's coming soon. But within a few years, all of the fields in that area are going to look like this display village. And you know what? It's interesting that our church is a bit of a display village for the coming age. Our cross-shaped unity that stands firm when trouble comes shows the world something of the age to come. Our cross-shaped humility that trumps self-interest shows the world something of the age to come. 
Now, at the moment, most of society will look at our church and that's as much as they can see of the world to come. But the day is coming when history will reach its fulfillment and all will become clear. Look where it's headed in verse 10, where at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Every single person will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. And it will be willingly for Christians, unwillingly for non-Christians as they face Judgment Day. Everyone will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. And that will bring glory to God the Father as his plan to save a broken and sinful world reaches its stunning conclusion. So let me pray for us as we finish Heavenly Father, thanks for your great plan of salvation. Help us seek cross-shaped unity when we face external persecution and internal disputes. When sinful self-interest tempts, help us imitate the cross-shaped humility of Jesus. And please, help us never lose sight of our cross-shaped destiny when every knee will one day bow to Jesus. And we pray all this will be for the glory of God. Amen.